How do black doctors grapple with race, bias, and the unique health problems of black Americans? You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Damon Tweedy. Dr. Tweedy is a graduate of Duke Medical School and Yale Law School, and also an assistant professor of psychiatry at the Duke University Medical Center. He is also the recent author of his memoir, Black Man in a White Coat, a doctor's reflection on race and medicine. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. To begin with, what prompted you to write this particular book? I think there are a couple factors at work. So one is there's the idea of always enjoying books written by doctors, like physician narratives, whether essays or whether in, in book form. And as I read those, started to read those throughout my medical training in medical school and in my early uh, the residency period, it felt like there was a piece missing. As much as I enjoyed those books and articles, they weren't talking about an experience that in some ways, many ways resonated with my own experience. And one was that the idea of taking care of a largely poor and African-American population, but also my own perspective as an African-American doctor as well. I felt like neither perspective was maybe fully captured in many of the kind of stories that I liked. And so what I wanted to do in writing this book was give voice to that perspective that I felt like was missing. You know, it's interesting that you mention it. I, during my training, also gravitated to various fiction. Recently, I gave a, a talk, and I kept referring back to books that I had read during my training, and I always remember one, The Last Angry Man, a book by Gerald Green. I had an uncle who made house calls in a very impoverished neighborhood of Chicago with his dog, and The Last Angry Man describes a man who practices in medicine in a neighborhood that's changing. I'm digressing a little, but like you, have gravitated to fiction, and it certainly had a lot to do with uh, my feelings about medicine. When, when you wrote this book, though, who did you have in mind as an audience? As you probably know, ReachMD, most of our audience are physicians and other kinds of medical caregivers, but who did you have in mind who did you want to have respond to this story? I guess a number of audiences. The most obvious ones would be physicians in practice who are in a position to interact with patients who differ from them in many ways in terms of economically and socially and, and that sort of thing, but also to medical educators, people in the position to sort of help educate the next generation of, of doctors out in the world. So those are certainly some obvious uh, talks that I had. But I also wanted to speak to many of the people in the African American community um, who have had all sorts of experiences, maybe good or bad, within the healthcare system. So one, to sort of kind of give voice to their experiences and perspective, but also to hopefully empower and encourage some of them to address some of their own health challenges. So, you know, And so one of the, the stories that kind of occurring themes throughout the book is my experience being diagnosed with high blood pressure, hypertension as a medical student, and the challenges that I faced and struggles you know, to address and to modify that, and how ultimately I adopted a, a different sort of lifestyle that was very different from sort of my cultural background. So in some ways, uh, an empowerment there. So really speaking to to the medical audiences, those who are educating the next generation of doctors, but then also the, the patient perspective as well. It took you a while to write this book, and during your experience or maturation or growth from medical student to resident and then to attending man, as your growth as a physician changed, how did your perception change when it came to writing this book? The earlier part of the book is really, the book's broken up into three parts, you know, my experiences in medical school, then there's a, the, the second section with internship and early part of residency, and then the third part is really more about my life as an actual physician in the real world to a large degree. So certainly, you can see in, in the narrative, there's a changing in perspective in some ways. Fundamentally, you know, a lot of the issues that I experienced are the passive time doesn't necessarily impact them, but th at the same time, there's a certain perspective that you get as you go through the process of you know, medical education. You start at the very the bottom, if you will, and you don't really often 
able to see the big picture as a medical student. You're so focused on just sort of advancing and you worked really hard to get into medical school and, and it's based on tests and performances. So you're really focusing on that side of things and you're not often seeing the big picture. And the further along you get, you're able to sort of take a step back and say, well, what does all this really mean? And what do I really need to know to really help someone? And so those things evolve and change as you get further along in the process. It's interesting because you two of your stories, one, you are in school and a professor asks you to change a light bulb, thinking, uh, making a stereotypic kind of uh, assumption of you. And then later on, people say you're six foot six. And they say, how do you practice medicine and still play basketball? And in both cases, you are somewhat reticent to respond. Do you think your response today would be different? If I were still a medical student, let's say I were a medical student today, having those same experiences, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's a challenge because, um, you know, I guess times have changed in some ways, but certainly at the time that I was experiencing those things, People didn't always respond well. If you, if you were to sort of counter or challenge them, sometimes that could be taken in a bad way and could adversely impact you. And so I, I had examples. I didn't necessarily talk about them in the book, but of people that I knew who had been more outspoken about certain issues and, and sort of confronting some of these prejudices where they saw them. And things didn't always work out the way that you would hope that they would have. So there's certainly the reticence on the part of being a young medical student at that kind of experience. Now, if you talk about me now as a, as a doctor who's been in season and been out many years in practice, I certainly have a different level of comfort in calling that out, if you will. But I think it's still difficult for young medical students to kind of find their voice at times. I have seen students now be a little more outspoken, and maybe that's a generational thing, than perhaps they were 20 years ago. So I do think it would just sort of depend on the state that you're in in your training. But I do think also that the passage of time has enabled some progress to be made on this front as well. I would have to agree with you. I think as a medical student, and I'm not an African-American, I also was reticent to speak out. And you make a comment, do I belong here? implying some kind of inferiority on your part of finally making this goal of getting into medical school. But I certainly had the same feeling of, do I belong here? Are they going to catch up with me and find out that I really don't belong here? So how do you feel when you process that remark, do I belong here? And what do you tell students that might have the same feeling now? Well, I think that do I belong here is a common thing among medical students, regardless of of race and gender and, and those sorts of things. I mean, I think that's a common perspective that many people have when they start something like medical school. In the book, what I was trying to convey is that there's sort of this added element of, of race, of this idea of particularly race and class in my particular situation. There's this context of, well, are African-American students really belonging on campus? Are, are schools making these special accommodations? Are you just there to sort of check off a box or fill a number, but they don't really think you're going to do well? So there's all this stuff that's sort of circulating in the back of your mind. It's not constant, but it sort of comes and goes. And it's there, and it's an added, in some ways, it's an added burden or challenge, if you will, to the process. That's sort of how I see them being there. As far as what I try and tell students now, in some ways, having my experience, and part of the story is showing how I was able to succeed in the face of these things. So in some ways, I'm offering up my own example, both good and bad, to hopefully a tool for, for young folks to pick up some of these lessons. To sort of, sort of show them that you know, other people have gone through this experience, maybe even worse than what they're experiencing now. One of the challenges with this do I belong thing is, is also the feeling of being alone. And that really sort of compounds it. But I think sometimes there's a strength in knowing that other people have experienced it and survived it and even thrived. So that's sort of how I look at it now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Our guest is Dr. Damon Tweedy, who's written a recent memoir, A Black Man in a White Coat, A Doctor's Reflection on Race and Medicine. One of the comments that keeps coming up, certainly it's validated by all kinds of statistics, but I'd like to know your take on 
the quotation, being black can be bad for your health, both personally and professionally. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the overriding themes of the entire book is sort of exploring that statement. So the book opens with a sort of story of a young black man around 40 years old who has a severe stroke. And then the professor sort of giving us all this information about how this is sort of filling the story about how, you know, black people have worse outcome here. This disease is more common among black people. Black people have a worse outcome with this disease. So whenever we had lectures on these topics, that was sort of the constant discussion. Whatever disease you would learn about, it wouldn't matter you know, what it was, it seemed like. They would always sort of come back to that. It's more common among black people. Black people have a worse course if they get this disease, whether it was hypertension, heart failure, renal failure. It seemed like it was, a, it was an ongoing kind of story, diabetes. So for me, the question was why? What did it mean that being black was bad for your health? Because, I mean, the data was there. Like, as you say, in some ways, it was kind of irrefutable. But the question is why and, and what can we do about it? What I've tried to do in the book is use different examples because I think there's a lot of factors at work. And the way that I conceptualize in the book are, are three factors. They're, they're structural, you know, sort of context, things that are outside of the doctor-patient relationship in terms of poverty and living in segregated communities, access to medical care, the different types of medical care you can get based on the type of insurance you have or who you have insurance at all. These things have tremendous impacts. And I, what I do in the book is use real stories of people who face these challenges to illustrate that. But then there's also the doctor-patient relationship, the, the communication, the trust, the mistrust, uh, bias, all those factors that, that also really can harm patients. I mean, several stories in the book that illustrate that. And then I think there's also just that, this idea of being segregated and being poor. There's also cultural factors that also contribute to health problems. So it's really like these three interrelated factors. And what I try and do in the book is give voice to each of them. One of the things that you touch on is something that all of us are struggling with, and that is behavior modification, Take changing lifestyle. In your book, you remark about that eating veggies and jogging is seen as less masculine among African-Americans. How do you deal with this? This seems like an added problem for a black man to face. You're asking him to do so much more than, say, someone of a different race. Well, I think the issue is really more about kind of it really speaks to this idea of getting to know the patient, understanding where they come from, understanding their background. I think so. The context really is really important. So I use my own story to really sort of illustrate how that can play out and, and sort of have real health consequences. So I, you know, I grew up in a community that was all African American, working class to lower working class kind of background. Certainly, there are certain foods that in the South and growing certain types of food. And as you get more information as a medical student, even before that, there's ways to address blood pressure, for instance, through diet. But even though change is difficult, like changing from any, all people can find behavior modification to be difficult, there was an added sort of psychological component to it. Because for me, it represented like changing from eating certain type of soul food, if you will, to eating things like yogurt and, and going on running on a treadmill and drinking a bottle of water as an idea of sort of giving up an aspect of yourself because things that were different than you and where you grew up with, you sort of associate as the other. Like that's something that, quote, white people might do. And being a black man going through the medical training, there's a huge amount of assimilation that has to occur. And so this seemed like it's another layer to that puzzle. In a time, I would struggle with this idea of, am I giving up who I was before? Where do I belong in this spectrum of society? There's that real sort of psychological challenge that, that many patients face when they're in these situations. Now, the question is, can a doctor-patient, can they have a kind of relationship where this can be something that's discussed and worked through? Because, I mean, it's certainly something that people can change, but it has to first be put out there on the table as something that's even there to address. So that's where it comes in. Can the patient and doctor kind of have the setup where they can even put this out there so you can then begin to address and change it? What you're really talking about is for all physicians to kind of develop cultural competence, to kind of understand the values of their patients no matter who they are. Yeah, and when people use the term cultural competence, though, there's sometimes a thought that you're just sort of stereotyping people. And so you know, when I think of it, I think of it more about the idea of you should be familiar that there are some differences in people's cultural backgrounds, potentially, you know, and some that can track along race and religion and other sorts of factors. 
But also at the Harvard, you still have to be able to connect with an individual because there's no sort of one black experience in terms of living in America. And so you have to be able to understand that there are some things historically that may impact the given patient, but then you still have to address with that individual patient. And to me, that's the art of that process that, that really needs to be done. In a recent article that you wrote for the New York Times, and I'm kind of shifting a little, you talk about African-Americans making up 15% of our population as of 2013, and that only 4% of practicing physicians are African-Americans. I know you're not going to be able to solve this problem, but I hear it from the Hispanic population as well. Where do we go? How do we address this really growing problem? Well, there's two things. I mean, so one is trying to recruit and retain more African-Americans and other minorities into the medical profession. That's a complicated process because it involves everything leading up to medical school, not just college, but even getting from the education system from K through 12. And how do you sort of invest in that process? So that's what you might call the pipeline issue. That's one big piece of the puzzle. I don't think there's any easy answers to it. It's just about investment and, and knowing that this is something that, um, I mean, there's all sorts of things that are being done now, like exposure programs or, or hospitals and things invest in communities to expose younger people in poor communities to even like, visit the hospitals, visit the medical schools, those sorts of things. And, and it is done at the middle school and high school levels as well. So that's one big piece of that there. I think there's also, you know, the cost of medical education is another concern when you think about this. Many people are, are sort of scared off, particularly people from lower income backgrounds may be scared off by the, the cost of it itself. Schools might need to do a better job of advertising the types of resources that they do have for people who are lower income. I don't think that is always well disseminated as well. So I think there's some people who are actually quite qualified might be scared away for that reason. So I think there's a couple of things that can be done from that standpoint. But then there's also the issue of, you know, again, we don't live in a world where everything's going to be perfect. And yes, we, the numbers may never match up perfectly. That brings us back to this idea of what can we as doctors do to establish the best relationships and offer the best care to people regardless of their race and background, right? And so this is where I see this whole point of uh, how do we connect with people who are different than us? Because that's the other way of really addressing this problem as well. So it's, really two, it's a two-pronged thing, trying to increase recruitment, but then also how do we make that good relationship with people? There's a story in the book I tell at the end where I'm seeing a white male who's a military veteran, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, is very different than me in almost every conceivable way in terms of background, disposition, personality. That first meeting was very cool, but then I reached out and tried to make a connection by asking about his family. And in the process of doing so, I was able to find out that there was actually a real similarity between his dad and my dad in terms of the relationship that we had. We both liked to shoot pool, a very small, simple thing, but it was like a father-son kind of connection that both of us shared and how that was the beginning of establishing a real treatment relationship that lasted for several years and, and followed him through different periods of his life. So, again, you can, you can have a very different background and perspective and still find a connection or common link. And so I think that's a, an example of that that I like to sort of give to you know, other doctors out there in the world, taking care of patients that are very different from them. And this was actually in a psychiatric context, which might have been even more difficult to establish. And so I think in closing, kind of summarize that the solution is maybe discarding our assumptions and connecting with each patient as a person. Find the commonalities and respect the differences between us and our patients. Learn their values. I really think that uh, your book is very inspiring and I encourage everyone to read it. And I really appreciate you being with us today. So thank you very much. Again, remember, black man in a white coat, a doctor's reflection on race and medicine. And if any of you have been delayed or late in joining us, Please know that you can go to ReachMD.com and download this podcast and many others in our series. Thank you for listening.